It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The United States is not a particularly happy country, according to the World Happiness Report. It measures income, social support, freedom, trust, generosity, and healthy life expectancy. Dan Buettner, who studies longevity, found in his research people are unhappiest in their 50s, but it keeps getting better after that. And as long as you keep your health, happiness rises into your hundreds. In fact, the happiest cohort in America are healthy people over age 100. Today, we dig into what makes people happy and where the happiest people live. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. The World Happiness Report puts the U.S. in 18th place just above the United Kingdom and surpassed by all the Scandinavian countries, Costa Rica, Canada, and Australia. Countries like Rwanda, Yemen, and South Sudan rank among the lowest on the list. What are the characteristics of the people who live in the happiest countries on Earth? What does the science say about what makes cities and towns happiest? Boulder, Colorado is high-ranking in happiness, but stress is on the rise there, and the city lacks diversity. What's being done to keep happiness levels high? Ahead, we hear from Boulder Mayor Suzanne Jones and Dan Buettner. Buettner discovered the five places in the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. He calls them the Blue Zones. Steve Clemens moderates the conversation. He's Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic. Here's Clemens. So let me ask is, I, I, I'm a um, typical, I have one of my colleagues in the back, Chris Colomer, he knows, knows this. I'm usually you know, the, the um, frustrated guy in our shop. I'm the skeptical Nixonian realist who thrives in darkness uh, and cynicism. And I don't know how I got selected for this conversation. So who is genuinely unhappy this morning or skeptical of this whole happiness shtick? Just, just please announce yourself. Now I will give you the first question when we get there. Um, you know, I mean, so it, it's great to be with all of you, but we're, we, we actually are going to uh, break down happiness. This is going to be a more serious discussion, I think, in trying to make it real. Uh, so so let, let me just start out with, with Dan for a minute, and, and, you know, let's have a conversation and just say, can you start by identifying the happiest people in this room? Yeah, well, well, let me first say... None of them say they're unhappy, by the way. <laughs> we'll find them. Yeah. So um, with two questions, either or questions, I can identify the happiest people in this room. And your job is to raise your hand when the, when, when, to, when the answer occurs to you. So the two questions are, first question is about whether you think life is long or short, either or. So raise your hand if you think life is short. Now raise your hand if you think life is long. All right, the minority, interesting. Keep, remember that. Now raise your hand if you think, this tech question is whether you think life is hard or easy. So raise your hand if you think life is hard. Now raise your hand if you think life is easy. Interesting. So I want everybody who raised their hand who think that life is long and easy to stand up. If you thought life is long and easy, stand up. And stay standing. Stay standing. So a few years ago, a Harvard research, don't worry, I won't humiliate you too much. A Harvard researcher named Mike Norton uh, asked these same questions and correlated it to happiness, life satisfaction, generosity, and civics. 
and he did this on three continents, uh, 2,500 surveys, and he found that people who think that life is short and hard are the least happy people. People who think that life is long and hard, and people who think that life is short and easier in the middle, but the happiest people are people who think that life is long and easy. So could we give a round of applause for the people standing here? They're the happiest people in the room. They're not only the people you want to uh, invite to your next uh, cocktail party. Uh, I, but I, I just want to say that, that I was raised believing that happiness is a function of relative deprivation. So, <laughs> so all of you really happy people, I really resent you. <laughs> uh, uh, so no, no. So, so you, thank you for taking us down there, Dan. What I liked about it is you, you mentioned Harvard research, and I know um, you're a believer in research and sort of the science of happiness, and you've been engaged. You, you interviewed the mayor a long time ago, basically about various factors like walkability, you know, financial circumstances, uh, uh, the, the proximity of good food. You know, there are various dimensions. So I'm just interested, you know, give us a start about the science of happiness and measuring happiness and, and how you would... You've told us what the best city is. Tell us what the crappiest city is in terms of happiness. <laughs> well, cra well, the least in general, the least happy cities in America are in the Rust Belt in mm. um, uh, southeast like part Cleveland of the United, or uh, West Cincinnati, Virginia, West, okay, West uh, Huntington, um, uh, uh, Southern Texas. Uh, they tend to be places where uh, people voted for Trump. Quite honestly, mm. um, <laughs> we're going to get to that later. Yeah. Uh, where life Remember, is this hard. is a balanced room, 50% are one and, side of that thing. You know, I, I'll just maintain, yeah, go and, ahead. And, and, so and science, way, back to the science. Well, yeah, so it's, it's, not, um, it's not like some scientist came and, and, and bestowed the title of unhappiness. It's really a reflection of what people themselves say about their own lives. Right. So that's mostly what I dealt in for this story. So can you, can you walk us there? So, so for this story and for the book, I relied on, on two pool, huge pools of data. Uh, the first one was a collaboration from Google, um, Gallup, and uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, World Wellbeing Project. And they correlated um, happiness in, in, in about uh, 200 cities, 220 cities, uh, with 5 billion Google searches. And, and wow. they found that we can actually predict your happiness better with what you look for on Google, what you search for on Google, than your education level or your income level. So it's a very good predictor. Not only that, incidentally, uh, we found that um, uh, uh, people who own dogs and are Googling about their dogs are happier than cat owners. Uh, <laughs> go figure. Uh, we found that uh, uh, people who are looking for movies about action and comedies are happier than people who are looking for romance movies. And for those of you who prefer uh, your romance by yourself in a room, we found that people who are looking for softcore porn are happier than those who like the harder stuff. <laughs> so You had so. to go there. <laughs> By the way, it's anonymous data, so we don't know, we don't know who you are. But, but uh, for, for most of this work, we rely on a, a much uh, deeper, credible pool. Um, uh, the World, uh, uh, World Value Survey and the World Database of Happiness out of, out of, out of Europe, they, they have gathered data from 95% of the human population, representing 95% of the human population, uh, in more than 155 countries. And uh, with that, they, they've... Uh, garnered uh, big data uh, insight. So first of all, you have to realize that happiness itself 
academically speaking, is a meaningless term uh, because you can't really measure happiness. But psychologists- This is making me feel better now. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna be happy by the time we're done okay. here. Um, but, but they can measure life satisfaction. And the way they do that is they ask people, uh, when you think of your life as a whole on a scale of one to 10, uh, how satisfied are you with your life? And that's a pretty good measurement, actually. Uh, it's, a, it's an evaluative measurement of your happiness. Uh, there's a, but you only remember about 2% of your life. You tend to remember the high points and the low points and what happened last. Um, so if I asked you what you had for lunch a week ago Tuesday, you probably couldn't tell me. But you can remember the last 24 hours pretty well. So um, uh, psychologists get at your how you experience your life by asking you to remember the last 24 hours and how much joy, uh, how, much, uh, how much you smiled, uh, how much stress you had. And from that, you, we can garner your daily emotions. And then the third measurement is purpose. How often do you get to use your strengths to, to do what you do best every day? And when you ask those three questions in a survey with 75 other questions about your demographics, your life characteristics, your values, and using the, uh, the statistical trick of regression analysis uh, and data that represents 95% of the human population, uh, you, we can find out very clearly what sorts of things accompany happiness. Uh, and two of the most interesting things are, number one, uh, you may have heard that age is on a U-shaped curve. We tend to be pretty happy when we're in our 20s and optimistic and dating and so forth. Uh, when we get down between 45 and 55, about 50 is the toughest year when it comes to happiness for Americans. It varies in different countries, but 50 is the toughest years. And then happiness continues to rise. And as long as you keep your health, happiness rises into your hundreds. In fact, the happiest cohort in America are healthy people over age 100. There's not many of them, but it's worth shooting for. <laughs> They're happy to be alive. Uh, the second thing in this Me Too generation, by the way, in countries where there uh, is not gender equality, the women are happier than the men. And in countries where there is gender equality, the men are happier than the women. So note to self, men. Fascinating journey. So let's jump to Boulder. And, and Boulder, I know, ranks, I mean, I was surprised to see that Boulder per capita has more people that walk to work than any other city in America. Uh, and that you've got bikers, people apparently very high level of engagement. But one of the things I noticed is that stress is on the rise in Boulder. So how does what Dan just shared with us in terms of characteristics and you as a responsible mayor in a city trying to push those needles of happiness, how, how, how have you been able to kind of change the ship? Or did you just inherit a city that was happy already? Was it ever miserable and you're like, felt okay, we have to fix this? <laughs> well, first off, let's be clear, the mayor is not in, in charge. We are the People's <laughs> Republic of Boulder. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, we were dealt a good hand, um, like this city, uh, we are in a beautiful place with a high quality of life. And I think that, let's not underestimate, that's, that's a big step up. We have invested a lot in preserving that and enhancing that. And I think that that's an important um, part of what we've done. And the, the character that you used to illustrate Boulder in the National Geographic was a citizen activist who helped us pass our open space ordinance. We were one of the, I guess we were the first city 
to tax ourselves to protect open space. Mm. And we have bought up a, we basically live in a green donut, um, 45,000 acres of open space. Now, um, this is where we recreate, where we see our wildlife, where we um, connect to nature. And, that, and there's some panels on how important that is, and I think in Boulder people are very clear. We are lucky to live there, we are blessed, and we'll take care of this place. So there's that. But I think the, the thing that Dan and I talked when he came to, to interview me, whatever that was, a year and a half ago, um, we talked all about purpose. And I do think that that's where Boulder, uh, that speaks to Boulder more, is this idea that because we can, we should be wrestling with the big issues of the day and leading where we can. We have a university, we have a dozen federal labs, we have more climate scientists per capita than just about anywhere. And so there's this sense that we need to be doing something relevant in addition to having this high quality of life. So is that like a cult? So that, you know, <laughs> people move there and they're assigned a task or do you think it attracts people who want to have purpose? Uh, hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, given that uh, almost a third of our city is students and professors, I, I think that that's also having, being around ideas and energy and Simulation and youth and all of that, I think, is part of it. So people get attracted here, and then they don't leave, um, which is another problem. Um, and, and let's be clear. We have all sorts of challenges, just like everywhere else. So that's why people thought it was kind of funny what that we were the happiest. Challenges? Affordability and housing. Hmm. Um, just like this place, only, no offense to Aspen, that's the model of whatever you do, let's not get as bad off in terms of the... The, ha the gap between the have and the have-nots um, and affordability, but we also look to all the things that you've, you've tried and see if we can replicate them. Um, but that's the biggest thing is people are moving to Colorado in droves. Why wouldn't they? Um, and housing uh, hasn't kept up, but also there's this, uh, there's this wrestling match between, hey, we used to be all about slow growth and that was the environmentally correct thing to do. And now we've realized, oh, to get all these people on the planet, density and uh, low, smaller carbon footprint is the right. way to go. But still, you want your sense of community, you want your sense of size, uh, the rate of change matters. And so how do you manage that in a way that retains uh, diversity and inclusivity is the big nut that everybody's trying to crack. Do you have diversity there? I was reading some stats on Boulder. It was 81.5% white. Um, 22% of people live below the poverty line, but 70% of those are college-age, meaning they're probably students. Yep. Median household income is about $61,000. So you're a pretty wealthy white community. And so I think one of the interesting questions is there, as we are in an age where we're talking a lot about inclusion and diversity and race <coughs> and inequality and social uh, stress and tension points, are you just in a lucky spot or an unlucky spine, how, how do you look at that, that dimension of this? I mean, when I'm in Aspen, uh, and, and even when I come to the Ideas Festival, I always ask myself about, are, are we doing all we can uh, to promote an inclusive, like, uh, uh, full crowd here? And, and so what, how, I, I know that you have what you have in the city, but I also want to come to Dan in a moment, saying how does that factor into your ha happiness research? But um, Yes, we are awfully white and um, tend to be on the more well-off um, and so we have made a, a real priority around how do we become more inclusive, um, and a lot of that gets back to affordability. Hmm. If you want diversity, you need to provide for all the socioeconomic 
strata. So we have one of the more aggressive affordable housing programs in the country. Mm. Um, we are, yeah, we, sp we can talk more about that. Um, we just did a, a survey to find out, okay, do people of color and people that are, you know, of different religions, do they feel welcome here? And if so, why not? Or if not, why not? And, and what can we do about it? Um, we, we made ourselves a sanctuary city. We have a growing Hispanic population. So we're doing all the, a lot of different things to try to embrace and retain in the face of this incredible market wave mm -hmm. that's making, you know, the median house, single-family house now is a, a million bucks. I couldn't afford to live there, um, except for I happened to get here 20 years ago. Um, so, so yes, it's a problem. Um, and but you're aware of it. You're working oh, on yeah. it. Like and you're self-critical, self yes. in a sense, yes. as a city. Yeah. Fascinating. Dan, how does that figure into the science of happiness in cities? Well, the first thing to realize is it's, it's rich and white, not because a bunch of rich white people had all of a sudden moved there. Uh, like you find in every happy place in the world, the happiest place, it is never a coincidence. Uh, there's always a genesis. Um, and it's usually enlightened leaders 50 to 150 year, uh, 50 to 100 years ago or so um, shifted from just economic development to passing policies that favor quality of life. In other words, uh, uh, business interests don't just take over and it's just all development. There's really a team of people like the city council in Boulder who really focus on, on building quality of life. And some of the things that we know most highly correlate with life satisfaction from this thing here are uh, access to green spaces, mm. access to places where you can recreate and do sports, uh, be health and happiness. You cannot really pull them apart. So if you live in a place where it's all concrete, and it's very hard to get your exercise, people are going to be less healthy and therefore uh, less happy. Uh, other things we know correlate access to healthy food. Boulder does a great job at, at uh, uh, making sure uh, healthy fruits and vegetables are very accessible. Uh, billboards. Uh, Boulder has no billboards. Uh, raise your hand if you like billboards. <laughs> The only people I like, like the movie about. <laughs> the, the, the only people like billboards are the advertisers and people selling things. So billboards, they tend to be full of things that encourage us to buy things we don't need and eat food we shouldn't be eating. And it's actually a great sort of city policy to not have billboards. And one of the, the best bellwethers of whether or not you're in a happy city is the bikeability. Hmm. Uh, happiest city it's in the world. It's one of the world. top things, right? Yeah, is bike in bike. Yeah. So Boulder is not just a coincidence that there's more bike traffic there than there's car traffic. It's the city planners sat down and said, how do we invite cyclists? How do we invite walkers? Uh, and they've done things like when you come to a, 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 a light, a, a street light, uh, it will favor, it'll sensors the walker there, it'll turn green for the walker. Uh, and traffic slows down, and it's safe, and there's trees. It's, this is not a coincidence, but it, it, all, um, it, it all produces a, a manifestly happier place. And then uh, in 1970, uh, Boulder was full of basically poor hippies, you know, the celestial seasons. And, um, and uh, they, people like <laughs> Ruth Wright, who, who I, I profiled for the yeah. geographic piece, um, she recognized that the view they have of the, of the um, what are those mountains? Flat irons. Flat irons is precious, and developers wanted to come in and build 
14-story uh, high-rises. Mm. And, and, and there's a plan to have up to 40 of those. So all of a sudden, this place where you could sit in any office building and see this gorgeous uh, landscape was going to be a, become a skyscape. And uh, the people working with the city council, and, and they had to listen to all voices. It wasn't just you know a bunch of uh, left-wingers pile-driving what they wanted. There was many years of conversation. But they managed to maintain this beautiful skyline and the walkability. Mm. And they worked hard for it. And sort of the point of the article in the book is there is a blueprint to create a, a healthier city. And Boulder is one of the best examples. And we should be aspiring to the condition of Boulder. Fascinating. Anybody from Oklahoma City? Anyone? Where? Yeah, so I, I, I happen to have become recently a fan of Oklahoma. I mean, my family is originally from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which is about three hours north. But um, not, not a happy city. Uh, but Oklahoma City is interesting, and I want to mention it because I think sometimes it's useful to think about places that aren't as happy and what they've done. And so one of the interesting things is the mayor of Oklahoma City, of whom I become a kind of fan, um, realized that they were not only appearing on the front of business and economic magazines as one of the fastest growing economies in the country, a lot of good things were going on there, but they were also appearing in health magazines as one of the most obese cities in America, including himself. And so he started a campaign to basically try and get people online, create a network and create community, uh, and got 40,000 people in Oklahoma City region to lose collectively a million pounds. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really an amazing story. And so when you kind of look at that, and then what did that lead to? It led to more engagement across race, across socioeconomic class. People began talking, and they began in city planning beginning to look at ways in which they could increase walkability in the city. So I just want to ask you a question about that. Rather than talking about the top end, though we all love Boulder and we'll get this, what about the most improved cities? Is there any sort of scale like, you know, I find the model of what Oklahoma City did and is trying, and I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana recently. Baton Rouge is a fascinating place, but it's also struggling with obesity in ways. And I met probably the best people I've ever met in the world totally fatigued by trying to figure out how to, how to, how to solve some of these problems that, that had become so chronic. And have you looked into that in, in any of your I National have. Geographic and Gallup research of what a, a city that doesn't have these attributes can do today because it didn't right. have that leader 50 or 100 years ago? Well, my, my, my other hat I wear, I, I lead uh, projects in 26 cities to do exactly that. Um, the Blue Zones projects. And the first thing to realize is that if you try to change people's behavior, you'll fail. Trying to, trying to get people on diets and exercise and to remember positive psychology um, uh, strategies, they'll work for the short run, usually a few months. Mm. Uh, but then people forget it or they'll lose discipline. Uh, the secret to creating uh, happier places is to optimize the environment. And we, we now have very clear um, um, strategies to change the environment. So we know the happiest people in America are interacting face-to-face -face six hours a day. And this, I don't mean well, Facebook, I mean face-to-face, -face <laughs> the, the, the way we evolve. So how, how do you get that to happen? Well, you design um, spaces for people to meet. San Luis Obispo is a really good example. That uh, was a kind of a crappy city in the in 1980s. Uh, the Mission Square was a parking lot, and some enlightened Boulder-esque um, mayors and city, man uh, uh, city council went in and say, no, we're going to change this into a, a place where older people can come together, kids can play, and we have outdoor cafes. Uh, they did the same thing about favoring 
uh, uh, one of the predictors of happiness uh, are, are people's consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm. Uh, the measure is if you have it at least four times a week. So San Luis Obispo has a, uh, a market every Thursday night uh, where a farmer's market where they've really invested heavily in there where uh, there's a street dance. Uh, not only can you buy your fruits and vegetables, but it's a big party. There's bike concierge. So they make this effort to bring people together and get them connected. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus, a German modern art school that impacted the Aspen Institute. Back in 1946, one of the school's teachers, Herbert Beyer, came to Aspen, Colorado and designed our campus. Institute curator Lissa Ballinger says the simple cinder block buildings on campus reflect Bauhaus concepts. No decoration or ornamentation on the outside of the building. A big focus on windows and um, bringing the outside in. And also very important to the entire Aspen Institute campus is the fact that the buildings are a really banal gray color. Today, the Institute is home to 200 Bauhaus artifacts. Walk through our mid-century modern campus in Aspen Insight. Aspen Insight is a podcast that highlights work being done at the Institute. Find the episode by searching Aspen Insight in your podcast player. Let's get back to today's show. Here's Steve Clemens. What would you say about if you were to all of a sudden move to, I don't know, trying to think of a city that really needs help? Well, I would think of Denver 20 years ago. Denver. Well, Denver has Denver's cool now. Well, I know, but it remade, yeah. the reason that I think it's cool yeah. is it, re- it rediscovered its river that runs through it, and instead of bombed-out warehouses, it is now the place you go to recreate, right. and, and they build all the housing along the river, and so you're, people are out biking and walking, and it's, it's totally re-enlivened their downtown, and now it's kind of a cool, hip place to go. So anyhow, same sort of thing. Uh, I think Denver is, is a good so example. Is this kind of is gravity taking us here? I mean, I, I as I think about this, you know, I haven't been to Montgomery, Alabama, in a while. But the last time I was there, it didn't it didn't feel great. I don't know if anybody's from Montgomery; you might have a different view. But when I was in Atlanta the other day and walked through that big park in the middle of town and saw this old Sears Roebuck that had been turned into a kind of a hip, cool marketing center, and you know saw just every kind of person you could imagine of, of, of every color, flavor, background in this park um, where there are so many free services, swimming pools for, for kids, uh, uh, you know, no fees, et cetera. You know, I look at Atlanta as another one of these cities that's, that's turning the corner. Who are your biggest clients? Because I know people pay you to help, help become, it's have, not live people. longer. Well, it's the Blue Cross Blue Shield. But they, the, oh, the insurance company. The insurance yeah. company. So huh. we, we have... Uh, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield usually or the hospital systems and we come in with a team of people and work three to five years and we help them r- uh, arrive at consensus around evidence-based policies mm. that are more likely to make them happy and healthy. We certify restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces and right. schools for them to change their policy and design and we get 15% of the population but we only get paid if we lower BMI or raise happiness. So this. Um, Thursday, in fact. Results-oriented. Only results-oriented. Uh-huh. So Fort Worth is our biggest city. And um, What do you find? I mean, this is so interesting. What do you find your clients, cities, firms, insurance companies, your players you're trying to influence, what do you find they most resist 
doing that you think is key to their success? What do they say, or you know, ultimately, they're, they're, you, you really have to push? Let me turn that question around a little bit. I, I find if you come in and try to tell a city what to do, they're going to show you the door in a hurry. Mm. So we actually kind of opened the kimono, and most of what we we're saying is that we're going to change your environment so the healthy, happy option is the easy, evidence-based. Mm -hmm. And before we go into a city, we, we get the mayor, the city council, the chamber of commerce, the superintendent of schools, the big CEOs, uh, the police chief. They all have to see exactly what we're going to do. They have to sign a pledge and they audition. So once the public sector's on board, the best way to waste money and time is have a city that doesn't really want you. So we make sure they want it. Then we have a clear policy pathway. And then um, once we get their buy-in and then we go to the nearby insurance company or hospital system or health foundation and say, look, these guys are ready. Uh, here's what we've done in the past. We think we could probably make a big difference. And usually in three to five years, we can see a significant, and we have Gallup measure it, by the way. Mm. So if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. It's fascinating. And, and then every year we get a report card, and uh, we're expected to see improvement every year. Mayor, I know you, know, you talked a lot about engagement, and that intrigues me, and just, you know, I, I sort of made light of it, because I do, I do believe that engagement and social connectivity, you know, connection to purposes, it sounds really expiring. I know that, that you're Moonlight as the head of EcoCycle, um, which you might want to explain to folks what EcoCycle does. I know that you lived in D.C. It's probably the, the least happy place uh, in America right now. <laughs> but, but, but um, you know, it, and it's probably actually because we're, you know, we've got bikeability in the past, but it's just, it's toxic there right now, we just have to admit. Um, there are other things going on. But, but when you are talking about that and kind of looking at this, what insights do you have about a community that finds great purpose in what it's doing that can be replicable in other places? Like, how do you think that that spirit of purpose could move to another environment? Well, I wasn't joking when I said it's the People's Republic. Mm. Um, we, do, <laughs> we do a lot of public process, in part because we have a history of citizen activism and engagement and where the citizens are leading, you know, through ballot measures and whatnot. And the city council, if it's smart, will follow. And so I do think fostering, we have lots of boards and commissions. We, whenever we're doing some big project, we set up working groups. I mean, we have a mm. lot of smart people, like the city, like many of the cities you all live in, uh, a lot of smart people with a lot of talent that would love to sit on a working group to help craft something and recommend to city council, this is how you should do X or mm. what. And so I, I think cultivating that, expecting that, um, there's a sense of ownership and responsibility. If you don't like something, well, then do something about it. Mm. And um, and I think it's it also has to do with also extends beyond our borders. I remember after the election, it must have been February. Um, a story is that a, a, a couple of women were frustrated. Obviously, we're all frustrated. Um, and so they they asked um, a this new groovy food truck. Um, brewery place, hey, can we borrow a couple of tables to have a postcard writing session? Um, and they put it out on Facebook. 500 people showed up. They boxes of postcards. I mean, these are blank postcards with, you know, address to, to Trump, to the Congress, to state legislature. And they were blank, and people were writing, here's what I care about, here's what you need to be doing. And it was this, like, we must take charge, not just of Boulder, but, like, we're, we need to help lead. And, and I, so anyhow, I think process, processes that foster engagement, um, where you actually listen to what people say and try to incorporate it, is pretty key. I'll also note that 
um, a lot of the things that I think people point to about the boulders done wisely were citizen-led initiatives, the open space, the height limit, the protecting the flat irons from development. Uh, we just did a, sh a tax on sugary beverages. Mm. There's no way the city council would have done that, but people came and said, we care about the kids. And uh, it was also led by a bunch of Latino folks mm. that were worried about childhood obesity. And they're like, we want to tax it and use that money to do all these kid recreation programs. Mm. And the people passed it. And so that's what we're doing. And Brilliant. Let me just one last question, Dan. I want to go to the audience. Um, the other day, The Atlantic uh, did a, a program on health um, inequality uh, in cities. And we were in Baltimore. And if you go to Baltimore, this is not a feel-good um, story. Um, you can look at certain communities. There are 11 communities inside Baltimore that the uh, li age lifespan, the average lifespan, is 20 years less yeah. than the wealthiest parts of Baltimore. And it does correlate with both racial differences and economic differences. And so when you look at a place and you're sort of a, I mean, I, there was this amazing uh, uh, commissioner for health that, that I had the privilege to interview up there who's made this her mission to really move that needle and change it. So when we talk about happiness, when we talk about some of this stuff, some places are really struggling. And when you've got a 20 year age disparity uh, in terms of lifespan within the same region, um, that is something. So to, what are the best lessons you can share just off the top of your head with somebody struggling with that sort of tension? Well, okay, for, for leaders, I think a leader in, in an area like that, um, they are uh, vocal about the importance of volunteerism. Uh, it, no matter where you go in the world, people who volunteer are happier than mm -hmm. those people who don't. Uh, in America, only about 30% of people who are working, this is a quarter gallop, mm -hmm. actually like their job. So if they want to live out their purpose, whether they live in one of these bad neighborhoods or good neighborhoods, most of the time they're going to have to find an outlet for that purpose that's not at their, at, at their job. Right. Um, generally, um, I, I believe that policies that limit uh, 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 fast food restaurants right. uh, is going to make a difference. Uh, um, Again, making uh, streets that are walkable uh, and bikeable, um, uh, planting trees makes a huge difference in these places. Uh, there's even research that shows some of these places that are going to have low life neighborhoods that have low life expectancy, doing something as simple as cleaning up graffiti or fixing broken windows, a very cheap and easy way that have shown elsewhere in the world can raise the happiness and because happiness and longevity are so well connected. Um, I, I'm just dying to show you this one oh, last yeah, slide, ahead, which yeah. you're going to like. This is about America. This is brand new research, and this comes from University of Pennsylvania, 1.5 million surveys of Americans. Mm. And uh, remember I said there's a couple types of happiness. There's how people evaluate their lives, which is on this uh, uh, vertical axis here, and then how people experience their life day to day. So uh, we distill that down. We find there's, so there's different kinds of happiness in America. So... Uh, where there's both low life satisfaction and low happiness are suburbs in America, mm. and the least happy are evangelical hubs and working class country. We talked about that before. Uh, and then going up the, uh, or along the happiness schedule, in other words, places where people actually enjoy their lives, but they don't necessarily get a lot done, are, um, well, the number one are aging farming communities. So this is in the Midwest where people may uh, they're actually really loving their life, waking up in the morning, going to the diner, chewing the fat, maybe not getting a hell of a lot done, but they're enjoying their day. And then uh, when it comes to life satisfaction, 
people really are proud of their lives. Uh, interesting, uh, African-American uh, cities in the South, they're at the, uh, communities in the South, they're actually happier uh, than their white counterparts there. And then big cities. Big cities are places where people get a lot of stuff done, but they don't necessarily love their life. But where the sweet spot is here, uh, college towns like Boulder, San Luis Obispo, uh, military posts, but then the outlier that this kind of shocked me, actually Mormon communities uh, are the extreme in both. So th again, this comes from a really deep data set taken over five years. Well, does that and, have to do with the sense of community? Uh, well, in, I just think it's not much. I, we, we don't know. <laughs> it, it, it could be. It could be. Yes, they feel connected. They tend to be very I happy. I was in George, Utah, the other day, and I tried to order a drink, and it was a challenge. Yeah, it could. Uh. It could be collective delusion. We don't know, but we're just. They, they seem to not only like their life, but uh, but fascinating. Cool. Assign. This is. I, I grew up on, on uh, Department of. I was grew up on military bases. I was an Air Force brat. I'm sure there are other military brats. Any who is a military brat? Yeah, did, did you remember this particularly happy place? I didn't. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's very interesting data. Something's definitely changed. Uh, in any case, let's go to all of you. Let's go to your questions, comments, thoughts. And we've got right up here in front. We'll go in the back. We'll go over here. We'll go over here. So we have the mic. Question for the mayor. I'm shocked with the desire on the part of the community to be a sanctuary city, which to me is something I'd just be curious about why and how that happened, given the opposite side or the controversy dealing with sanctuary cities and safety. Sanctuary city. Um, we talk to folks in our community, undocumented DACA students, and they said, will you please stand up for us? And we said, yes, we will. And it was over, there was, it was not controversial in Boulder. Um, I think also there's um, a, a sense of outrage about what this administration stands for in terms of um, our heritage as a, a country and our relationship with immigration. And so people were wanting to say, and, and also there's another underlying issue here, which is um, just that local police don't want to be in the business of dealing with ICE, the detention, the federal immigration law, because we want everybody in the community, whether you are there legally or whether you are documented or not documented, to call the police if there's a crime, to call the fire department if there's a fire, and to feel safe. And if people feel like they can't deal with local city employees because they're afraid that they will turn them in, you have a breakdown. So anyhow, that's, uh, that's Is why- Is Denver a sanctuary city? Um, but not in name. Not so, in, so, it is so in practice, they, they, but not in name. It's correct. And there's a lot of cities oh. that feel that way because it, it breaks right. down your local um, law enforcement. Thank you for raising it. In the very back. Thanks. Uh, I'm Dylan Edwards. I work for a program of the Aspen Institute called AMP Health. Um, I'm originally from South Africa. Uh, South Africa is the most unequal society mm. on earth by, by most studies. It's either us or Brazil generally paying the inequality World right. Cup final Brazil, every yeah. year. Um, and we are the 105th most happy country in the world. One place above Iran, one place below Palestine. So you're saying America at number 18, that's not so not, bad. Not too bad. <laughs> but you're facing a rising inequality problem, yeah. and it seems to me that that's probably not a coincidence. Those two things are probably right. related. Um, and I just wanted to, to, yeah, to the entire panel, taking a, taking a lens away from looking at cities, mm. looking nationally in, in the U.S., and 
to other countries right. uh, and developing countries in particular? Are there, are there lessons that we can apply at a national level, at policy level, to get happier? Right. What insights do you have for that? Thank you. Yeah. And then we're going to go to this, this woman right back here. But go ahead, Dan. Yeah. So my, my, my work was a statistical exercise to, to, to try to predict what was more likely to bring happiness. So if you take all this data from 155 countries in America and you correlate it, you find that the biggest predictors are, of happiness are tolerance. Uh, are you mm. free to live out your values regardless of who you are? Uh, equality, the short ladder between the richest and the poorest. So places like Denmark that have the shortest ladder, not coincidentally, I believe, are the happiest. And places uh, like Brazil, which have the longest, and in South Africa, uh, they underperform given their GDP is a predictor. But GDP is only a useful predictor of happiness for poor countries. GDP makes a lot of difference if you're Bangladesh, but makes almost no difference if you're Switzerland. Raising the GDP of Switzerland is not going to do anything to raise their happiness. Bangladesh, it's a lot. Um, also. Um, a healthy life expectancy, the other big. So that, that, you know, if you're a leader that's actually interested in producing happiness, which Thomas Jefferson charged, um, then you'd want to pass policies that favor equality, right. tolerance, trust, healthy life expectancy. That, those, those levers are going to make the biggest difference if you want to produce a happy nation. Um, I just my one editorial because I read a lot of material preparing for today and I can't recall where I read this but I'm sure you can uh, search for it but one of the fascinating stories read about was the mayor of Bogota uh, and how essentially he took money that was set aside for major highways and turned them <clears throat> into bike paths yeah. and, 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 and did things shutting cars down, creating a very different relationship with vehicles. So I, I don't know if that's going to fit the case of what to do in South Africa, but I think part of the lesson of today, which I hope you get, it's so wonderful to have uh, Suzanne Jones here and telling us about a place that's got so much of it right, but it's often looking at the worst places. So if you're going to rank places, look at the worst places, and also then look at the places that were bad uh, that began to actually make significant changes, like in Oklahoma City, like a Bogota, uh, which are, of course, cities, and not, it doesn't fully address your, your country question, but that might be a useful resource. Let's go to right, you right here. You were here. And we're going to go short questions, short answers, because I want to get as many of you in as I can. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, first, I wanted to thank you, Dan. My favorite class in college was called Happiness, and we used your book as our textbook for Great. that. It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, It's called Recurring Returns is, Without Recurring Effort. It's fantastic. <laughs> book, so, book. About gentrification, a lot of the time, the sort of indicators of happiness that we see in these sort of cities, usually to get those their company gentrification in some way, right. how do we prevent that from happening in different communities as we move forward? Thanks. Well, it depends what you mean by gentrification. It's, uh, it, so, so you're asking if gentrification makes places happier? Because you, well, you improve a neighborhood I, I, and you yeah, displace see, people. The, the thing is, you know, there's this housing pro problem with Boulder. I, I think rather than trying to pour into Boulder, there's a bunch of other cities along the range where you take what Boulder did and you bring a new generation of people who want to, and you follow the Boulder path rather than try to fill a vessel that's already mm -hmm. pretty full. That's just my opinion. Probably. Well, I'll just say it's a huge issue in Denver. Um, and, it, and basically the problem is you make a place nicer and then people with means move in and then the, the poor people that well, used to be there get moved out. Right. And that's where I think government policies around affordability and affordable housing and insur ensuring mixed neighborhoods um, and giving people access to that are, are essential. Otherwise, it's a pattern you see again and again. Uh, yes, ma'am, right here. Yeah. Uh, good morning. Good morning. My morning. question um, relates to the, the 
um, the slide that showed this life satisfaction and um, the fact that Mormons and military bases are happy, doesn't that show that we as humans like control? We like to that psychologically human beings do better when there's firm rules for them to follow and that when the rules are kind of fuzzy, people tend to be unhappy. Yep, oh, I have a really great fuzzy answer. rules or autocrat autocracy. Okay, so it, so I found so the that, that so the I, for the geographic yeah. article I found the three happiest places in the world: Singapore, Denmark, and Costa, Cartago, Costa Rica, and they're all happy in different places. The happiest place in Asia is Singapore, and one of the main reasons they're happy, to your point, is that there's a very clear path to success in life: get in the right school get the right job, get in the right club. Financial security is almost uh, secure for sure. Your mother will be proud of you. Your friends will be impressed. And when you look in the rear view mirror, you're very satisfied with your life. That's one kind of happiness. But then there's the other kind of happiness where you see in, in Costa Rica where people are enjoying their life day to day and having more social interactions, drinking coffee and hanging out with their family. Great question. Right here, Secretary Glickman. It's interesting. You have evangelical hubs on the low end, and you have the LDS on the high end. And I ask a question about faith and spirituality. I've read about people who are, in fact, have deep faith and and attend church or synagogue or mosque late in life. They have longer life periods, and I wonder if that factors into your. It thinking. absolutely does. So, so you you can't really measure yeah. spirituality, but you can measure religiosity. And that's measured by how often you show up to a faith-based community. So those people are showing up four times per month, are living four to 14 years longer than people who don't. And that's especially powerful for people who live in the inner city and minorities. When it comes to happiness, it, generally people are religious, are happier than those aren't. But you're more likely to be happy being religious if you live in a religious place. So if you live in Latin America, being religious, big plus. If in Denmark, it's not so powerful. Right here in the middle. My name is Buren. I'm Boulderite. And the first time I seen my mayor in person. Oh. Uh, <laughs> thank you wow. very much. The city you council. you like her? <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> I do everybody in um, Boulder. And I lived there more than 10 years. Okay. And Boulder does everything possible to make this paradise, I say. Huh. And my son and I was... I'm an immigrant myself, uh. and widow, and single mom, 11 years ago came to Boulder because right. of the school system. And we survived. And why I mentioned that? Because of the good community, how to, how to support, how to create less, uh. we rise. Living proof. Excellent. Thank you so much. No, Thank you. And oh, I you have, have a couple questions. questions. You know, you know, one, one quick, you got one quick question because we're out, okay. nearly out of time. So. What's the ethnicity of the uh, percentage of the ethnicity in our Boulder? And then what's the right. last number in Boulder population now? Yeah, population now and what's the age ethnic span. participation? I mean, oh, you're 82% white, but what's the rest? Um, then Hispanic and a little bit of Asian, very little African American. Total population? 108,000. Interesting. Let's go right here. So Jared Diamond has written about the impact of geography on culture. He's more my kind of guy, war, so, destruction, uh, end, of, end of time. My, my question is, um, when, you, when you go into a city and you look at the geography, if it's contained within a valley versus widely dispersed over flatland, right. do you have a different strategy for implementation for dispersed versus yes. a concentrated? So there, there's all kinds of very easy 
policies that will limit sprawl. So the green belt that you see in Boulder or in Portland or in San Luis Obispo, uh, you can also limit the size of people's uh, uh, plots of land to under a quarter of an acre, you'll also limit sprawl. And then not financing in infrastructure, which is a bad investment usually. Uh, and we're gonna go here, I apologize everyone, we're right at the end of time and I want you to be able to get to your next session. But yes, who are you and, give it, and make it good. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. Shit, this wasn't so good. Um, most, I've, so I've read many studies saying that one of the best ways to change habits in adults is to teach children those good habits. Right. Get a kid to volunteer, their parent volunteers. Get a kid to learn about obesity, their parent loses weight. So I'm curious about your comment about not changing habits as part of your model and how much that plays in in terms of educating mm -hmm. kids in the next generation on these healthy habits that increase lifespan right. and happiness. That's a wonderful last question. I want to just put in a Thank plug you. for the Aspen Institute because they have a center, and I actually can't remember this one by Aaron Mosley, but one of the things they look at in terms of dealing with school-to-prison pipelines, poverty, issues like this is a second-generation approach, that if you're not dealing with a two-generation approach, you're really not changing it. So I want to say it's both on the positive side, but also trying to correct other issues. So thanks so much for raising that. So very quick two-part. I, I still don't believe you're going to be very successful at changing habits. However, you can give kids skills that will make them more likely they're happy. So in Denmark, for example, very happy place, these folk schools teach kids, rather than just no child left behind, language arts, math, and science, they teach consensus, civics, art appreciations, and those are lifelong skills that will favor happiness. Mayor? I'll just say my day job is running EcoCycle, which does recycling and composting and advocacy around that. And we have a huge school program with precisely that goal and outcome, which is you teach the kids how to recycle, and they go home, and they teach their parents, and mm. it works. Wow, fascinating. I just want to say that you know, I'm still stuck in that kind of dogs and cats thing. I once wrote a piece, didn't go over well, I once wrote a piece saying, you know, um, Joe Biden reminded me of Golden Retriever and Obama of a Russian blue cat. Uh, and, uh, you know, and you think about it, it does work and fit, but they were not too happy with that piece. Um, but, but thank you for a wonderful discussion. Please give a round of applause to Dan Buettner of Blue Zones and Zan Mayor Zan Jones of Boulder. Dan Buettner is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Blue Zones, Lessons for Living Longer from the People Who've Lived the Longest. Suzanne Jones is the mayor of Boulder, Colorado. Previously, she was the Central Rockies Regional Director for the Wilderness Society. Steve Clemens is Washington Editor-at-Large for The Atlantic and Editor-in-Chief of Atlantic Live. Their conversation was held on June 23, 2018 at Aspen Ideas Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas health team is Peggy Clark, Ruth Katz, Katie Dresser, Tracy Anderson, Natalie Johnson, Deb Cunningham, and Sola Farquhar. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.